We start a new series today. Uh, We start a new series all about King David. Uh, King David is famously described as a man after God's own heart. And there's a whole stack of lessons from his life that I am really looking forward to unpacking and going through with you over the next few weeks. So for June and, and, and July, for the like next seven weeks or so, we're going to kind of pick out some highlights from David's life and focus in on some key stories uh, and take away some great lessons for our lives. Uh, um, do feel free to point your phone at the QR code there and you can jump into the YouVersion uh, event and follow along. Uh, the Bible passage that Carl read there for us and also some key points that I put in there. So uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. So if I were to ask you or ask us all the question, what has been the hardest thing uh, or things that we have ever faced? Many of us would probably shudder on the inside, but we'd also know pretty much straight away what those are. We would probably say to ourselves, there's kind of, you'd have, you, you, maybe you have a top 10, maybe you have a top three of some of the most difficult and tough things that you've had to face uh, in, your, in the course of your life. Now, I've pondered this very challenging question for my own life, and uh, what I've realized is, is that the nature and the scope of the different giants that I have faced in my life have been very varied. Uh, they have varied at different points. Uh, I remember one time when I was about five, I had learned to swim, and I'd learned to swim really well, and uh, I went along to uh, my usual sort of afternoon swimming with my school, um, and I looked in the water, and I had this sudden realization that it was totally fluid, and that I could just slip below the surface, below the surface and, and there was nothing of any substance to the water, and I suddenly had this concept that the water was very treacherous. Uh, and in, in an instant, I lost all my confidence in the water. It just vanished. And I panicked, and I stood on the side, and I wouldn't go in, and I, uh, there was nothing you could do to make me go in. And it took me a good three or four years to restore my confidence in swimming. In fact, I think it wasn't until I was nine that I actually managed to swim a length, with, uh, sorry, a width of the pool without putting my foot on the floor. All my confidence vanished. Um, another time in the workplace as an adult, I realized that in the IT contract that I was working on, that there was a bully uh, on the team that we were facing off to, that we were reporting to. And he was treating me and my team really badly. And I decided that it was time to face up to that. Uh, and so I booked a meeting with this man and I went to the room. And as I went to the room to challenge him about his behavior, I was shaking like a leaf on the inside. I really was. Make no mistake about it. The adrenaline was pumping. I was frightened. I am convinced to this day that he could hear my knees knocking as I walked into that room. And actually, as I went through the meeting with him, it turned out okay. But boy, was I scared. I was really, really frightened. Uh, Another time uh, in my life, I faced a giant of a different kind. This time, it was a profound disbelief that I would ever get better again. Uh, It was in year seven, and uh, we were playing rugby. It was the first term of my secondary school, and we were all playing rugby. And we had a terrible, I had a terrible tackle. And uh, not only did I fall on my leg in, in a bad way and with my weight wrong, several other people from the scrum fell on me in a bad way with their weight. And uh, 
something horrible happened to my right foot and it wrenched right round. And um, as I lay there on the grass and I could kind of see my knee was in this position and my foot was over here, I knew something was really, really wrong. And I yelled and yelled and yelled. And I was like, oh my goodness, I have really suffered from a, 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 I thought I'd broken my foot. So they called the ambulance and we went via ambulance to the hospital and I got one of these thick socks rolled onto my foot and I was given crutches for four weeks and I was told to take my weight off my foot. Uh, and so this, this injury lasted that period of time. And after the four weeks came and went, um, uh, I went back to the hospital. I went to speak to the physio. And the physio unrolled the sock and he had a look at it. And he said, listen, that looks like it's realigning itself. It's coming, you know, it's coming along really well. But you are going to have to put some weight on it. And uh, as I, as I kind of gingerly put my foot on the ground, every single cell in my body said, you can't do that. Don't do that. What on earth are you trying to put weight on that for? That is now out of action. It felt like I didn't even have a foot. It felt like I had a stump there. And I really, really struggled with the idea that I would ever get better. But gradually what happened was as I went home with my crutches and I tried to do this around the kitchen and I I gradually, gradually managed to persuade my foot that it could be used again. Uh, And I slowly managed to get motion back into it and slowly, slowly, slowly I got there in the end. But a giant that I faced at that time was I do not believe that I will ever, ever get better. I do not believe that I can ever use this limb again. What are some of the battles that we have faced as we cast our, mind backs, our minds back sorry, over the giants that we have found so hard to face off to? What are some of those giants? You know, perhaps it's been a really difficult or a challenging character in our lives. Perhaps it's been the loss of somebody really, really dear to us who when, they were, when they're gone, we just didn't realize how much it was that they meant to us or how much they did for us. Perhaps it was facing a period of tremendous sickness in our lives that we didn't think we would come back from. Maybe it's been because of conflict with somebody else or a group of other people that has left us really feeling very trashed or wounded or disappointed. Maybe we've become inexplicably estranged from a group of people that we once held dear or that we still hold dear, but we don't know how to get back in with them. And we'd love to know how to resolve that, but it seems like that problem is totally locked and there doesn't seem to be any way forward. Maybe we had a dream about how our lives were going to turn out, but then like that dream kind of just didn't happen. And that's it. it's been its own giant in its own way. Maybe we've faced financial ruin. Maybe we've had to go to court. Maybe we've even done a a bit of time in prison. Maybe we've come to the tough and stark realization that there's an addiction that we battle with in our lives that we just find really, really hard. We face all sorts of different giants in life, don't we? But something is characteristic about all of them. And the characteristic that they share, this one major characteristic, is that they all seem to be very, very difficult to overcome. They are not easy in any way, shape, or form. And as we come to 1 Samuel 17, as read for us there by Carl, we find a whole nation hamstrung by the presence of a formidable champion named Goliath who seems like a completely invincible opponent. Every day for 40 days, this giant soldier Goliath, standing over nine feet tall, has been taunting 
King Saul's army, challenging his men to a one-off, sorry, a one-to-one combat to decide the outcome of this standoff between their nations, the nations of the Israelites and the, na- the nation of the Israelites and the nation of the Philistines. And Saul and his army are immensely discouraged and dismayed. Nobody fancies their chances against Goliath, and therefore nobody puts themselves forward to have a go at fighting what seems like a formidable and unbeatable opponent. But then, a young slip of a lad called David appears in the mix. And what is so remarkable uh, remarkable about David is that if we were to set up all the conditions in the human to help someone to have the confidence to face a giant like Goliath, David doesn't seem to have had many of them up to this point in his life. He really doesn't. What I'm saying is that David does not seem on the surface to have had those factors that we might usually consider to be helpful in bringing confidence. Let me tell you uh, what I mean by that. So in the previous chapter, his mum and dad seem to have forgotten him during a key visit from the nation's prophet, a prophet called Samuel. Samuel makes an arrangement to come and see the family because God's asked him to do that. But they've left David out in the fields tending the sheep. You know, this is a bit like making plans for Archbishop Justin Welby to come and pray with all the members of your household, but you've left the youngest down at the, allon- uh, the, at the allotment tending some vegetables. If, parents, if David's parents are forgetful, which they seem to be, his brothers are absolutely scathing. Uh, David joins his brothers at the battlefront, and when he asks the soldiers about what is going on, his eldest brother Eliab is vile to him. 1 Samuel 17, 28, 29 says this, David's oldest brother Eliab listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why did you come down here, he asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done now, protested David. It was just a question. Furthermore, David did not have the kind of physique that would match up to Goliath's physique. We get the impression that he's just mid to late teens, and he's no match physically at all for such an opponent. Uh, such an opponent. Had he had a more convincing physique, perhaps there would, been, there would have been greater confidence from King Saul in putting him forward to fight. 1 Samuel 17, 33 says this. Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. Nor are King Saul himself or his army particularly inspirational examples to follow. They are locked in a stalemate with a long and drawn-out conflict with their arch enemies, the Philistines, uncertain what to do next, and completely overawed by how one large man appears. We also know from the previous chapter, 1 Samuel 16, that not only has the spirit of the Lord left Saul as leader of the nation, but that we also find out that he is now tormented by an evil spirit. And on top of all of that, King Saul is also just clumsy as a leader, just as he tries to be helpful. He offers David his own armor, and I suppose it's a kind of a fatherly and kind gesture, but it's woefully inadequate to help in the situation that David is about to face. You can just imagine the armor being too long and it, it not fitting the guy properly. It would look like a bit of a joke. Very few of the things that we hope should be present to help David have confidence in the human 
are actually present for David, it would seem. He appears very much as the underdog or the outsider. Forgetful parents, scathing brothers, a personal physique that does not compare well with an ordinary soldier, let alone Goliath, a lackluster king of the nation, an army that is filled with fear and armor and weapons that do not fit. In other words, David is a lot like you and me. He is not perfect. He has not had the perfect upbringing or culture or background to set him up to have confidence to face a giant. And guess what? That is what makes this story so appealing because he's ordinary. David is just an ordinary dude. He's just ordinary. And that's the appeal because he is like us. We don't have perfect parents or perfect conditions or perfect upbringing or a perfect country or perfect tools to do the job that we need to do, do we often? And so David is somebody that we can identify with. David is an ordinary guy who steps up to the plate and he does something incredible. That is why he is so appealing. And I want to ask the question, so where does... David draw this extraordinary confidence from that he brings to a situation that is so confident and so assured that it turns around the fate of a nation. Imagine that for a moment, that you're a person that who's in whose uh, situation is that your confidence in, the, in an outcome that is yet to play out is so strong that it actually causes it to play out exactly as you'd want it to. But it's not just your situation, it's the situation of a nation. That's a lot, isn't it? Think about that for a moment, that's a lot. So what I want to ask this morning is, what is the example that David can teach us in order that we can face our giants? In order that we can face those things that we find immensely difficult to face? I'd like to draw out three main lessons from the example of David from 1 Samuel 17, which I believe are highly instructive and helpful to us in facing our giants and prevailing in our lives with those things that we find really, really hard. These are the things that set David on his amazing journey to fame and fortune, and hence the title of my message this morning. Number one, David gives the battle to God. Number one is that David gives the battle to God. If we try to make the battles we wage between us alone and our giants, they will be much, much harder to win, and we will think that we cannot win them. But if we involve God on our side in our battles, we suddenly realize that we have this colossal power in our corner who is working on our behalf. And knowing that we have company on our side and just who that company is makes all the difference in the world to how we face things. Does it not, church? Are you with me so far? In Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, uh, it's a trilogy of three books, really. There are two hobbits, two little, little guys. There's, there's a few of them, but there are two in particular called Frodo and Sam. And they are assigned the task of taking an evil ring of great power deep into the heart of enemy territory to get it destroyed in the volcano in which this ring was originally forged. Now there comes a point in the journey where Frodo, who's the person who carries the ring primarily, quite near the end, he, he, in this journey, he gets utterly exhausted. 
He's totally dejected. He's really despondent. He's got nothing left in the tank to take him uh, to the, the, the final few steps of the journey. And in fact, this happens kind of on the slopes of the volcano. He lies down, facing the dust, in the ashes of this volcano, and he's just, he's just going to give up. He's had it. He's completely spent. And then suddenly, something of a huge and righteous indignation rises up in Frodo's companion, Sam. And Sam finds strength from somewhere. He actually picks Frodo up and carries him on his back to the entranceway in the mountain, which is like an entrance to a little path that goes into the heart of the volcano. And from the edge of this pathway, they're able to drop the ring into the lava below, and they can bring about a righteous destruction of this horrible, uh, horrible ring. What Sam does is he brings Frodo a strength and a resolve in those moments where, where basically Frodo was about to give up. And it makes all the difference between defeat and victory. And I want to just put it to us that in just the same way, God is our constant companion in our corner who will bring us strength and resolve that will make all the difference in the battles and the giants that we face. Amen? God is living and powerful and he's for us and he's not against us. Joshua 1.9 says, haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Or I mentioned this in her worship. If we sing at those obstacles in praise and worship, they will fall down. We find the same righteous indignation that Sam shows towards his friend Frodo when David calls on God in Psalm 18. I don't know if you've read Psalm 18 recently. Um, it's actually in our current, right in our reading for today, for our BCC's reading plan. What happens is that David is calling on God. He, he reminds God of all of his characteristics. He calls him the rock of his salvation, uh, you know, his fortress, his, his, his mighty protection. And he asks God to help him. And it's as though God is this huge, colossal being that wakes up and suddenly goes, Ah, well, David, I need to help you. And he raises the whole of heaven. And the whole of heaven comes charging towards David to help him out. So much so that the roots of the mountains get exposed. The valley of the seas is made visible I mean it's just real power stuff it's great the Lord responds to David's request with colossal strength and it's very very encouraging if you're ever down in the dumps read Psalm 18 aloud and it will give you like an injection of God's power in your spirit what we, what we find as we read through 1 Samuel 17 is it's very apparent from the way that David thinks and the way that he speaks about the conflict that he totally understands that God is in his corner. God is on his side. He constantly refers to how the battle belongs to God and not to him. He says in verse 47, This whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. All of David's thinking and language reveals this really firm and heartfelt conviction that the offense of Goliath is against God and that the battle therefore belongs to God and that David will be supported very strongly by God in his efforts to confront Goliath. And so the lesson for us in facing our giants then is to remember that we have God strongly in our corner, that we are to enlist him on our side in our efforts and we need to have the presence of mind and the faith to know that God is enormous and powerful. 
And he wants to help us. Step away from making the battle between just you and your giant and make the battle. Step towards making the battle between you and God and your giant. There's a massive difference between those two things. God is very much on our side, church. Much, much more so than we often remember. Make the battle God's. And that's what David did, number one. Number two, David wins private victories first. As David persuades Saul to let him confront Goliath, he tells Saul about the victories he has already achieved that come from his time as a shepherd. 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 36 says this, David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Can I just say, to have the confidence to grab a lion or a bear by the fur and kill it is very impressive. Has anyone here done that at all? No, I didn't think so. You know, when I was, when I was, when I was young, I used to have a dream that, that there would be a lion loose in the garden. And it used to really scare me. The concept of there being no fence between me and a lion. Horrific. Can I just also offer some pastoral wisdom about if you're having to escape from a bear, don't bother climbing a tree. You know, bear, bears can climb a tree faster than you can run the 100 meters. And you can check that out on YouTube if you want to. This insight into David's private victories over these animals is in total contrast to how his brother Eliab sees him, isn't it? Eliab very condescendingly says this, who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? David doesn't even answer this taunt, but he knows that he's the kind of shepherd that certainly has not just left his sheep in the wilderness. Winning in private sets us up to have the confidence to win in public. And I actually think this idea has wide implications. Pastor Rick Warren, who recently retired from Saddleback's church, uh, Saddleback Church in California, said this once, and I think it's so true. Private victory equals public authority, doesn't it? That's very true. So what, that, what he's saying there is if we win in private, then we can have the confidence to win in public, knowing that our integrity is in good shape. Conversely, if we're losing in private public victory falls a bit hollow and can sometimes be exposed. We keep seeing leaders, both in Christian circles and also in the secular arena, whose private victories have not been forged properly and they're not robust enough. And when their public downfall takes place, it's confirmation that that private foundation has not been forged properly yet. David has developed a strong track record of private victory against these formidable opponents in the form of lions and bears. What is really interesting to me is that that pattern that David sets in his life then becomes a pattern in the people who follow after him. He, he enlists a, a guy into his army, a guy called Benaiah. One of the credentials that Benaiah has is that he goes down into a pit with a lion on a snowy day. And he wins a fight with it. And there's actually a very good book by a pastor called Mark Batterson, uh, which is literally called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And it's all about having the courage and integrity to take on and win our private battles in order 
that we may then we may then win in a public setting. The lion in a pit on a snowy day only gets one single mention in the Bible, but actually it turns up in today's Bible reading. That's a bit weird, isn't it? David knows that he can win this public battle because he has the track record in private to back him up. And when you're in a situation of leadership like that, not only can you face your giants, but you then inspire and encourage others to face their giants as well. And that is awesome. Number three, David uses innovative methods. It's very striking to me that David shuns Saul's armor and weapons. And he decides on the methods that he knows and that he's comfortable with. David also seems to realize instinctively that a face-off with Goliath on Goliath's terms is much less likely to break the deadlock that they've been, all been sitting in for the last 40 days. And so what he decides to do is he, he decides to take the, the battle to Goliath on David's terms. And he decides to fight him with a sling instead of a sword. He knows, David knows, that nothing's changed in these last 40 days. So why would you keep on doing the same thing if nothing's changed? And so a new approach is needed. It seems to me this whole fight is an object lesson in the power of accuracy over strength. In this case, accuracy is what is needed and it's what prevails. And it allows from a strategic win from a distance through a stone fired from a sling. Now, I see how David wins this battle with unconventional weapons as a picture of us here in church, giving permission to our younger generations to take ground for the kingdom of God in the way that they should see that it should be done, not in the way that we should see how it should be done. So just go with me on this for a moment. We're all upstairs as adults, aren't we, in the sermon? Downstairs and around the building, we have BCC kids and we have city youth going on. If they come up with a way of taking ground for the kingdom that doesn't use our tools, doesn't use our armor, doesn't use our strategies, doesn't use our methods, but it works, then we should stand aside and applaud that and give it as much permission and encouragement as space as possible. That is so, so key. I don't think necessarily that the, the weapons and the armory of one generation is necessarily going to be the weapons and the armory of another generation. Do you follow me with that? That's really, really important. Our younger people and the people coming up behind us, they're going to win as they, as they face off the giants that we're all facing, but it may well be that their methods are a little unconventional to us. We may, we may not see the sense in their methods, but they will have methods nevertheless. Like, for example, right now, I find our culture with its obsession with seven-second-long seven videos on all forms of social media, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you, TikTok, whatever you name it. I find that odd. I just, as a form of communication, I find it weird. I don't really think it says an awful lot. I think it's entertainment. And yet, and yet, if there is some young person who manages to make that work and manages to, manages to reach a generation through that form, then do you know what? I'm not going to get in the way of that. I think that's a good thing. That is somebody using tools and weaponry to extend the kingdom of God from where they stand and using what they think is good right in front of them to, to, to achieve it. Just as David decided, do you know what? I'm going to use a sling for this. I'm not going to be able to fight this weapon with the weapons that this guy's using. I'm going to do it the way that I think God's asking me to do it. The armor and weapons of one generation are not necessarily the armor and weapons of another so let's be gracious and mindful of the big picture and not the minor details. 
If the generations coming up behind us do it differently, but they're still taking ground for God, praise God about that. That's an awesome thing. I'm going to ask um, our worship team just to come back up and return. And I'm just going to take us through what are the three ways that David models to us as to how to win big victories against immense giants. Number one, David gives the battle to God. He makes it something in which God is involved and God is absolutely necessary to winning. He does not try to do it in his own strength. That's really, really key. Secondly, David wins private victories first. He puts in a foundation of private victory in the space where no one can see in order to build a strong foundation for when people can see. And that seems to me to be such an important pattern for our own spirituality. Are we putting in victories in the private space first in order that we, we may then have victories in the public arena? And number three, are we prepared to innovate? And are we prepared to let our younger generations innovate and get them and allow them to do new things? They may take ground for God in ways that we just go, huh, I've never seen that before. I can't understand that. I don't get it. But do you know what? You're building the kingdom of God. So fair play to you. Let's all stand BCC. I'm going to ask you some questions just as we uh, begin to sing. And if these questions are things that you want to respond to, I'm going to ask you to come forward to the front and spend some time in God's presence and, and processing these questions with him. Is it time for us to make a battle that we are facing God's as well as ours? Is there a battle that we are having that for some strange reason we haven't made God's? And do we need to bring God into the battle with us? Do we need backup in our battles? And does that backup need to be God rather than some of the other resources maybe we've been looking at? Do we need to build a foundation in private that really works in a coherent and proven way? And converse to that, are we not, is it not working in private? Is there something that we're struggling with, we're just not prevailing over, and we need help in the private space to make it work? And do we need to, to give grace and space to our next generation that are coming up through the ranks? Do we need to just have that room in our minds to say, hey, you guys are going to do it differently from us, but that's okay. We'll let you do it differently. And all the best in God to you. Maybe there's some families represented in the room where some of our youngsters, we're just not getting them. And we're exercised about that. And maybe it's a case of praying and releasing. If any of those things apply to you, or if there's anything you want to ask God about, just come and spend some time at the front. I'd just encourage you to do that while our worship team lead us in song. Thank you.